The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. You can support this series by coming to a live event, spreading the word, or making a donation. Find out more at theinterval.org. Thanks for listening. One of the things that we're about with this space is not just speaking from the lectern, but having a dialogue, stimulating conversations, and, and so that's really uh, the idea behind tonight's event. Um, as you know, uh, there are folks here wearing name tags, all of whom have some, um, some personal work that they do that's related to refugees or migrants in one way or the other. Um, and uh, hopefully you've had a chance to introduce yourself and chat with some of them tonight. Um, we're going to continue that exact same um, sort of um, uh, conversation after this talk. So just think of this as not the main event, but just one aspect of an event um, that as you hear things you want to find out more about, we're not going to be able to cover everything uh, in every aspect of, of this area tonight. So. Um, you're going to make the program, and, and if there's somebody who has an interesting, um, uh, is, is working in an aspect of this you're interested in, find them afterwards, keep that conversation going, uh, and talk amongst uh, yourselves as well. The last thing I'll mention is just a quick shout out to uh, Edward Bertinsky, um, who is a, uh, an artist and filmmaker um, who has spoken for us before. Um, he is sponsoring uh, our live streaming capabilities. So we're able to do that thanks to his support. Uh, in 2016, and um, you can find uh, at, at Anthropocene on Twitter is his Anthropocene film, uh, which is coming out next year. So um, this, this image is the, uh, the image of the year for the World, uh, World Press Photo Image of the Year, uh, and it is uh, taken by a, an Australian photographer named Warren Richardson uh, on the border between Horgos in Serbia and Roske in Hungary, um, part of a series called the Refugee Crisis Hungary. It's a man who's handing his baby through barbed wire uh, lit only by moonlight, uh, and it highlights uh, the fact that um, clearly this topic we're going to talk about tonight um, is, is, has captured us, it is raw, and it is happening in real time. Um, and here at the Long Now Foundation, with, with all of our series, we really pride ourselves on taking a long-term view. Um, and short-term thinking is needed too, and short-term action is needed as well. But one of the things tonight, as we're uh, feeling um, a lot of emotions and, and, and a lot of involvement in, um, in refugee issues and migrant issues uh, is that we keep a long-term perspective. Uh, and so that's one aspect we're going to be talking tonight is how we look at, uh, at, at this situation over time and that we need to plan for it as we continue forward um, so that we can deal with it better tomorrow because uh, these, are, these are issues that are not going away. Um, what we see here is a graph showing the uh, refugees that are in protracted displacement, so more than five years. So when someone crosses the border, a large percentage, when, when people cross the border, a large percentage of them um, are not returning. Um, they are staying in this other state, which we're going to talk about a lot more for, for a long amount of time. And so that's the, the orange that you see that persists. So today's refugee situation uh, 
has a lot of yesterday's uh, refugee situation for decades. And we see refugee camps that are sticking around um, for, for, for decades, and we'll, we'll talk about some of those. Um, when we look back in time, this is uh, to ancient Athens, classical Athens. Um, there was a, a huge value in Athenian culture to take care of those in need who came, to take care of refugees. Um, this was not a, a new problem, uh, a new situation. Um, and at the same time that it was exalted as a value and something they took pride in, it was also something that still divided society. So we find plays by Sophocles that talk about uh, accepting people from uh, that, that are coming in as refugees and that it causes debates and it causes strife. Uh, the idea of it as well as the fact of it. And we're seeing that in our society today. So in, in some ways, just to say, so many of these things are not new. Um, here's a piece of uh, a fundamental idea from Long Now's history that Danny Hillis, our, our founder, said, um, a lot of times when we look at a situation, we look at a problem and try and solve that in two years, it seems impossible. But if we reframe that around decades, around centuries, we say, oh, there's a way we could approach this. We could start doing things and building towards it. So that's just one of the frames we want to think about tonight, um, that kind of idea that we're not just limited to the tools that can have an impact right now, that we start conversations that can lead to um, larger, uh, larger goals and, and larger achievements over time. Um, this is a graph um, that points out something uh, really important or a, a, a <coughs> a map that points out something really important. So this is about internal displacement. So someone who's displaced within a country is not a refugee by the technical political definition. We'll talk more about that. Um, so one of the things to understand is that when people draw a circle around refugees and, and are thinking about solving that problem, it's not really the, whole, the right problem. It's not the whole problem. There's displacement that's going on. And if you're only looking at the set of people that are that technical classification of refugees, um, we're leaving a lot of people out who are in uh, uh, just as challenging situations. At, at Long Now, we, one of the tenants, in addition to Long, the Long Now is the big here. And um, the idea is to live in a longer now and also a bigger here. And the world is our here. And it's uh, a, a challenge like migration and refugees um, reminds us that we're one big here. And these are some, um, some numbers that point to the fact that, um, that the shared, a more shared approach can help us balance uh, the challenges and, 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 and make some of those uh, most stressed zones uh, you know, diminish in, in those, those challenges. So, um, I just wanted to put up a, a few of these things to, to get us started. Now, uh, I'm going to take a, a back seat and bring on some folks who uh, are working um, with this situation every day uh, and the global challenges of migrant and refugee populations. Uh, please uh, welcome Hugh if you want to come up. Say, this is Hugh. <laughs> Hugh Bosley. Uh, and Hugh, we'll uh, give you. Uh, you want to walk us through, tell, sure. tell us a little bit, first of all, about your organization sure, and, and sure. your relation to First, I want to thank Michael for organizing this. He's put a lot of work into this. We actually started having this conversation about a year ago. So 
So uh, we were both kind of hoping that it would partially go away, um, but that hasn't happened in a year. It actually seems to have gotten worse, uh, and we hear more and more about it every day in the news with sieges, and um, the narrative doesn't really seem to be changing. So um, it's, it's timely in the sense that, uh, uh, that we're all coming together. Just a kind of quick show of hands, who has uh, experience, direct experience with refugees or in, internal displaced people? So a fair number of people, okay. So <clears throat> each one of you brings a unique and, and special perspective to the issue. So um, you know, part of this is a discussion, and after the uh, sort of the formal presentation is over, we invite you all to get together and, and see if we can uh, maybe share some ideas, rapid prototype some solutions, and, and, uh, and, and keep the conversation going. Um, so I am uh, founder and executive director of Reboot Camp, and what we do is we train um, Syrian refugees to code. Uh, we've got some great partners, and uh, we've sort of identified our strategies to sort of identify gaps in the market and then sort of train the refugees to sort of fill those gaps. So it's a, it's a way that they can um, kind of get some of their self-respect back, kind of continue on with their life. Um, five years going into the Syrian conflict now, and that's sort of where my um, wheelhouse is. Um, the, you know, the, the opportunities are, are starting to thin out. Hope is starting to diminish. You know, for one or two years, it was like people were kind of expecting that the situation would um, stabilize, they could return, but that hasn't been the case. So going on five years now, uh, in, in in many of the, uh, the refugee areas, in the camps in Jordan, um, in the informal camps in, in Lebanon, uh, Turkey, um, you have no tertiary education. So, um, and with, uh, um, and Peter can speak to this a little bit, um, only half the kids that can be in school are in school. So education is a real, is a real concern. Um, and it's sort of the area that we've, we've been focusing on um, <clears throat> the numbers, uh, almost 60 million now, uh, IDPs, those are internally displaced people. Uh, as Mike was talking about early on, these are people that haven't left the borders, but they've been forced, uh, out of their cities or they, and, and, and the reasons are, um, as we'll see are, are varied, but, um, uh, and they actually, IDPs account for actually most of the displaced people. Um, total number of refugees pushing 20 million now, um, and these are a lot. A big portion of this is, is, is because of Syria, four and a half million. Uh, the main reasons are war, of course, conflict, and climate. Um, in many cases, farmers have been you know working the piece of land for years, generations and generations, but because of droughts and stuff like that, they've had to relocate. Uh, this is one of the reasons. Um, that's, that's sort of posited why the Syrian conflict uh, started. Because you had a lot of farmers that were moving into the cities, just causing stress. Uh, and so during the Arab Spring, there was a sort of a, a, an overreaction to, um, to the protest, a lot of which were um, being led by these farmers who were not happy. Um, number of people fleeing each day. This is, about, this is the population of Menlo Park. Those are the number of people that are moved. Uh, on the move every day. Most of them are, are, uh, are young. Uh, a lot of women and children, um, also a lot of older people. So, 
average stay in a refugee camp or average, average status as a refugee now is pushing 19 years. So is that's that, a, is that uh, what it's been at stably or is that increasing? Or it's increased. It, it was uh, in 2012, it was 17 years. So in, a, in yeah. four years, we've, we've added another two years. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why people um, don't return to their country of origin. Sometimes they can't go back. Sometimes there's nothing to go back to. Sometimes it may be a case of uh, your neighbor, you know, um, murdered your, your, your cousin. So there's just like very, very bad blood, you know, and there's um, no reason to go back. So this is the, right now we're almost at 20 million, and by 2020 they're projecting 50 million refugees. And uh, of course, the, Syrians, the Syrian problem is, is, is one of the reasons why I'm here today. Uh, just a little background. I started, I've been working with the UN now for about three years. Uh, and we started uh, doing athletic programs in uh, what was like the third largest refugee camp uh, at the time, was Zatchery Refugee Camp in North Jordan. Um, and from that, we got involved in the, uh, in the education. But um, 4.8 Syrian, uh, million Syrian refugees, about uh, 800,000 in Jordan, a million and a half in Lebanon, two and a half million in Turkey, uh, and the balance are sort of spread out through Iraq and, and now Europe. <clears throat> and this is just, uh, this is sort of where I, I, I've been operating in Zatry, and this just goes to uh, show sort of the rapid um, development and how it sort of grew organically. Um, it's actually the largest concentration of Syrians outside of Syria. Remains at about 80,000, 82,000. They just had their 5,000th birth in the camp. Uh, five, the 5,000th baby was born, I think, yesterday. And uh, they have like three to four births a day. Um, and that's generally the average size, 85,000. Most are younger than, uh, than uh, 18. Um, only half, are, half the kids are in school. Why is that? Um, in many cases, the parents keep them out of school to work. And you say, well, what kind of work gets done in a, in a refugee camp? Well, Zatry like uh, has this whole sort of uh, black market economy going on. Uh, there's 3,000 businesses in Zachary right now. So kids do everything from make concrete to, you know, uh, deliver pizza. Um, and the, um, the, most of the refugees actually live outside the camps. Um, this is uh, because there's more, there's more opportunities in the cities. Uh, even though the refugees are not allowed to work, Syrian refugees are not allowed to work uh, in and Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, they do. Probably 80% of them work. Uh, the government doesn't enforce it because they're doing jobs that nobody else wants to do. Um, much like the migrant labor here. <clears throat> so there have been a lot of different solutions. Um, this is one UNDP, I'm sorry, uh, UNHCR Innovation uh, is, is promoting uh, how to sort of stay in touch with each other using social media. There have been a lot of different responses uh, from a lot of different folks. 
we have this Skype in the classroom in, uh, in Kenya or um, another innovation, UNHCR innovation project where sort of pop-up schools, um, medical folks have gotten involved in terms of containers. Uh, the tech industry is, um, has taken a sort of a big, uh, a big uh, they've got a big initiative to develop different types of tech solutions from uh, 3D printing of prosthetic limbs to um, haptic uh, sensors for people that have lost their their vision to uh, early warning uh, barrel bomb apps applications that they can have on their on their smartphones. So, uh, lots going on there. This is um, this is our organization, uh, RBK, and what we're doing is we're sort of we're identifying gaps in the market, and a huge one is, of course, is um, uh, the tech industry uh, entry level uh, developers and engineers are in great demand in the region. And what we're doing with the help of um, uh, a, a code boot camp here in San Francisco, Hack Reactor, uh, is we are, um, they're our, one of our main partners, is we're teaching refugee, uh, refugees to code. And then we've, um, we have hiring partnerships in the, in the region where, our, um, where these companies have promised to hire our graduates. So. And, uh, and on that, let's, let's, let's stay on that for a second. So one of the things you're doing is it's not exclusively for the refugees, right? That no. helps sort of. So in any, any good humanitarian practice is you train an equal number of refugees and host nationals. So in this particular case, we are training half Syrian refugees and then half Jordanian nationals, but we're targeting the at-risk populations. Uh, there's areas in Jordan, like Zarqa, it's a Salafist stronghold, and they supply more fighters to ISIS than any other city in the world by just a major, major amount. So we're identifying at-risk kids in these areas, also in the border areas where unemployment is like 80%. Um, and they have right now, they've got, they've got a choice between an AK-47 and an AK-47, depending on which side is offering them more money, um, because they're being recruited by ISIS, they're being recruited by Al-Shabaab, by you know the other extremist organizations. So we're giving them a third choice, uh, a career. Uh, for the young women, the uh, the coping strategies uh, are just as bad. It's basically uh, teen marriage, either forced or volunteer. So you have these 13, 14 year old girls that are sort of being kicked out of the house uh, if they don't want to go on their own. They're, you know, they're, I mean, they're, they're, their parents are forcing them out or marrying them off in some cases to um, you know, foreigners. So we're offering these young women also a sort of a, uh, another, another choice. <clears throat> why don't we, um, Natasha, do you want to come up? Why don't we jump back for a second to to this idea about the, the populations that are outside, and I, I think that's maybe a great place for you to, to say, um, to come on. So um, as you know, we have a lot of, of, um, of experts in our midst, uh, and, if, and several of them are, many of them are in the audience, so as uh, if we call on you for a question and you're one of those folks, we'd love, or even if we don't know about your expertise yet, We'd love you to stand up and just briefly sort of say who you are and, and your background, what you, how your relation to this is. And Natasha's going to give us a great example of that to start us off. Sure. My <laughs> name is Natasha Iskander. I'm a professor at NYU. I'm on sabbatical this year. And I am at Stanford for the year uh, at the Center for the Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences. I always get that wrong, but not tonight. So, um, so 
I don't work on refugees specifically. I work on migration writ large. And my, my contribution here tonight is maybe to frame this question around what we understand the refugee crisis to be and how we define or distinguish, rather, refugees from migrants. So the concept of a refugee is actually a legal concept that emerged in the immediate post-war years. Uh, the convention was uh, ratified in 1951. Um, and it is a distinction that grew out of the failure of European countries, primarily, to deal with the World War II refugees, the massive movement of people who had been displaced by this cataclysmic event. Um, this is the distinction that we still use. And we haven't deployed it or thought through it as deliberately as we've been thinking about it over the past five years. Because the, the major refugee crises or the major forced displacements of people have been in areas that have received far less coverage in the US and in Europe, so primarily Sub-Saharan Africa. And with internal displacement in Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Latin America, Colombia primarily. Colombia has a huge internally displaced persons problem. In fact, it was interesting in your map that the, uh, the causes for displacement were all natural disasters. Um, but in fact, in Colombia, the, the major cause of displacement is actually violence um, and civil war. Um, so my understanding is uh, that it might be helpful to present a little bit of the long now. Yes, well, would that long be now helpful? Is always welcome. <laughs> um, right, so this notion is a, is a notion that emerged right after, the world, after World War II. And for the US, the North Atlantic region, and Europe, migration has been, for the most part, the steady, regulated flow of people. It's been, uh, there have been labor movement accords, right? So uh, Europe imported guest workers from North Africa, from Turkey. The US signed the Brasero program with Mexico and kind of regu these regulated flows that had informal, undocumented components, but no big spikes. Um, the big spike is what has drawn our attention. The big spike to Europe has drawn our attention to the refugee crisis today. Um, Lebanon and Turkey and Jordan have experienced these flows in big numbers, um, really, since the beginning of the Civil War. Um, the US, in particular, has in its history, and I know there's an American historian in our audience here, so I, I may stand corrected, but um, in its history, the US has experienced these big spikes and has not had the same kind of anxiety around these big spikes in the past. So one example that for me is very poignant is the uh, Irish potato famine. So Ireland, uh, between 19, sorry, 1847, and, which was the, year, the first year of the famine, and 1851 lost 1.5 million people. Um, and it was a population in, I don't know, the, the, census bef the, the last census before the famine uh, listed the population of Ireland at 8 million. So the, that's an equivalent number to the kind of uh, displacement proportionally that you see from Syria today. And uh, most of the, so um, a huge number of Irish ended up on, in New York, in Boston, in Philadelphia, 
um, and in Montreal, Toronto, they, were, they traveled across the Atlantic in slave ships that had been repurposed um, for the movement of Irish immigrants. And Manhattan, which in 1847 had a population of 300,000, received 200,000 Irish people in two years. And its population grew by one-fourth. Um, so, did, so did the population of Boston, Philadelphia, there's one more city that I'm forgetting, Baltimore, maybe? Um, no, Chicago didn't get a lot of Irish. They, did, they got a lot of Germans who moved Midwest, to the Midwest. Um, but these populations were not tagged as refugees. They were just seen as migrants, and the cities that received them absorbed them. We didn't, we didn't tag them differently. The, the, the tagging of refugees as distinct from migrants is a new phenomenon, as is the sense that um, the cities in Europe and North America cannot absorb them. Mm. We have in the past, and uh, it wasn't as traumatic as, as one might think. Right? So it shaped our understandings of things like infrastructure and poverty, but basically, basically, um, we have in the past had this capacity, and it's this new tagging that has transformed our vision of what we can absorb and what we can't absorb. And I just want to say two words about this tagging, and then maybe I'll turn the microphone mm -hmm. over. There's a representation of refugees as, it's almost like a sanctification, right? They are fleeing persecution. And, and it's a particular kind of understanding of persecution. It's persecution that is generated by a state body or its equivalent. It's not random violence in your neighborhood, which is why we have such a difficult time understanding refugee flows or people fleeing violence in Central America. It's much more fraud. It's much messier. We have street gangs here. Why, you know, so why are those people refugees? So there is a kind of understanding that this violence must be organized by some sort of official or quasi-official body. And there's almost a sanctification of refugees. They are innocent victims. We, we like to think of them as um, the people who got caught in the crossfire. And they are caught in the crossfire of a particular kind of violence. They're not fleeing economic uh, necessity. They are not fleeing violence that grows out of different kind of tensions in their community or different forms of global commerce, like the drug trade. They are fleeing a particular kind of violence. And so since they are fleeing this kind of violence, they, we need to provide many, many services for them. And those services are costly, and we can't absorb them, and so on and so forth. And, and you're talking about the institutional system only recognizes those. So when the you say, yes. we, we have feelings about other, other types of migrants, but, but as far as the ones who can get the can get asylum, can get, can get that recognition and, and that assistance. But that asylum, is that, that's a great question, because that asylum is actually an interpretive and very fraught process that depends on the people adjudicating those cases. Mm -hmm. How do they, is this really a legitimate form of violence, or is it not? So um, is this a legitimate claim, or is it not? But anyone who is fleeing um, or migrating because of extreme poverty or extreme violence that isn't represented in these politically palatable ways, or maybe, mm -hmm. as has happened in the past, they are coming from a country that is our ally. Mm -hmm. And it is our ally that is oppressing people. So 
we're not going to rec. That's not we're really not gonna, violence. That's just yeah. you know obedience training. Yeah. Something you know. So uh, what? Uh, they're just having an argument. That's it's right. Not a, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, not being I'll, I'll, I'll end the comments there. That this is a rich and important topic. I'm really glad that we're here. Well, this is great. So so why don't you have a seat up here, Beverly? Would would you mind coming up? Um, and and I'm going to have you come up, and I'm going to ask a question to see. So I'm really interested in something you just said. There's a notion I, I keep thinking about it as I learn more about it. It's like, well, so they're filling out paperwork in these. Is that is that some how? If I know there are people here who've worked in, um, re, and, and brother, why don't you come up and, and have a seat, and we'll um, let me see. For for those of you who have worked in camps, who've been a part of camps, are, have you? Are there are there folks here who've been a part of that process of? People applying for asylum and and what that dialogue is like, what that process is like. Is anyone Sergio? Are you here, Sergio? Do we have the other other microphone? Uh, here we go, uh, Sergio. We got the the microphone here. Just just quickly introduce yourself uh, and um, and make sure the microphone is on. Hey everybody, Sergio Medina. I'm the founder of Rise. It's Refugee and Immigrant Services. So the question is. So as we're hearing about people that are applying for asylum, they're in, they're in a refugee camp, they, they would like to get asylum. What's that process like? Are they literally filling out forms? What's, what's, is there a bureaucracy they're going through? How is that interpreted? Because one of the things we're seeing is There's that, two ways. Yeah. There's two ways to do it. One is one by one. Mm -hmm. And if you do it for 50 Tell million them. people, it's going to take you decades to do it. Or what you can do it en masse. Everyone in here is a refugee. Uh, Hugh and I are UN um, staff. We're all UN staff. You guys all come in. We can say, we're going to interview each and every one of you. Or we're just going to say, are you all from San Francisco Bay Area? Do you all get discriminated against because they, everyone thinks you're wealthy? OK, so we're going, to, we're going to say everyone here meets that definition. And you guys are all de facto refugees. But, and so what we'll do is we'll issue a de facto number mm -hmm. right, to, to this group of San Francisco Bay Area discriminated against because they're a wealthy group. Uh, and then you guys will come in and you say, hey, you guys can go to the camp, you guys can go to Oakland and try to find a job. Uh, so it, it sort of happens like that. There's mm -hmm. no single point of entry into a mm -hmm. country to get status. And it's, it's, you're talking about massive, massive flows of people. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of conventions, whether it's like, uh, whether it's a, a European convention or an African states convention, a refugee convention, mm -hmm. a Latin American Colombian states convention, just to complicate mm -hmm. things. All right. Yeah. Well, um, thank you, Sergio. Round of applause for Sergio. And, and Beverly, where I thought it would be a good point to connect with you on a couple things. Your expertise, and I'll let you introduce yourself, but your expertise in Europe and in Germany in particular, obviously Germans, Germany's reaction to this has been uh, well covered and, and has uh, controversy around it. Um, but I know that you were also in Turkey, so I'd love to have you, you say something about your experiences last year in Turkey, but maybe, um, I don't know, so uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and make sure to hold the microphone very yes, close. Yes, I'll that, hold uh, the microphone. My <laughs> name is Beverly Crawford, and I teach at UC Berkeley. Um, I actually just retired there. Congratulations. <laughs> but I'm still teaching to keep my brain going. Otherwise, who knows? Um, I, was, I spent last summer in Turkey. I was there to do, to do uh, 
research on refugees and to do demographic research because very little is known about, you know, how many people are, are how old and women and men and children. I mean, the UNHCR has, has these broad numbers that you mm -hmm. put up here, but, but there's very little done on who, who the refugees are. So that's what we were, we were doing. And as we went out to interview people, we realized how much they were suffering and we always brought some diapers to the mothers and baby clothes and, and things that they needed and throughout the winter we brought, um, well my colleagues brought, brought coal and wood for them so that, so that we became kind of a, a research aid organization I would say, mm -hmm. we, were not, we weren't incorporated. What interested me most and what, what upsets me a lot is that, is that, as Natasha was talking about, we have this UN Convention on Refugees, which only covers a particular group and not those fleeing certain kinds of violence, climate, climate um, there are so many climate refugees fleeing disasters, but countries who sign the Refugee Convention are obligated to accept a refugee on their soil. Mm -hmm. And the, re the person will say, I'm a refugee, and they, are, and they are obligated to allow that person to apply for asylum. However, it's a catch-22, because they do everything they can to keep the refugees out. Mm. So you, can, you are legal if you're in, and you're actually legal if you're out, but since you're kept out, you have to go to Europe, let's say Europe, or even the United States, we know that, in an irregular way. And so many people are risking their lives to get the, get the, uh, the rights, the human rights that they, that they ha are entitled to. And so 4,000 people died on the Mediterranean Sea last year. And the U European Union has, I, I asked them, well, why don't refugees fly? They should, I mean, they could fly. They, they pay smugglers one to $2,000 a head. They, you could fly from Istanbul to Berlin uh, for $300. They don't fly because you have to have documents to fly. You have to have a visa to fly. If you're a refugee, you're, you're sometimes there without documents. And certainly you don't have a visa because refugees don't get visas. So the trick is to get in and then you're legal. And so people have to, um, people have to take these very dangerous, dangerous journeys. First they escape danger and, and life-threatening circumstances in the countries they left, then they had to maybe leave the camps, and the camps are very much underfunded. I don't know if anyone's going to talk about that, but yep. they're 50 cents a day for, for food in the camps for each refugee. Um, they, so they, they, the camps and staying there 19 years is not really, you know, the prospects of the future are not good. And so refugees want to go to places where they can work, places where they can have a livelihood, where they can live, where they can educate their children, and so they, they have to risk their lives yet again on this incredibly dangerous journey because, because the European Union will not let you fly and enter Europe, and the United States is the same, without a proper 
visa, even though you're legally entitled to this. And so now Europe is sending, now the, the NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is sending warships into the Mediterranean Sea, and, they, and the, the, the pretense is we are going to pick up human traffickers and we are not going to send refugees back because they're not really allowed by international law to do that. Um, but there are no smugglers on the boats that bring refugees from Turkey to Greece. Yeah, so, so um, there's a film. I don't think I ended up showing it because uh, it, it, the technology <laughs> didn't line up. But um, I'll, I'll send out a link to this afterwards. I think it's called Journeyman TV, journeyman.tv. It's in a series of videos of various aspects of, of um, the refugee migration situation. So um, they have a, a, a piece with a French um, uh, company, I believe it was them, um, and, and they show one of these. So, so maybe maybe you can help me sort of talk I've through this. But seen that. Have you seen I've that? Seen yeah. That video where the, he actually paid his thousand dollars to go on. Well, this this might this might be uh, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, but it's probably similar. So 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 what was interesting and alarming to find out was um, these. These, this, this business that these smugglers are running is they bring a boat that's in pretty crappy shape, usually. Um, they've arranged for, I'm not sure how much people are paying to make the transit, but as you said, it's much more than, than a plane ticket. And we'll, um, we'll, we'll talk about uh, this organization, which you brought up um, in a second. And then they load everyone on the boat, and the smugglers dive off and swim to shore, and they go count their money, and they hand the controls to whoever happens to be closest to them, and one of the refugees then tries to take this boat to its destination. Um, and then when they get there, very often, the EU rule is that the first country you're in, right? right. Is the first country you're in, you have to ask for amnesty there. <clears throat> but most of them don't want to be in the first country that they're in, so they're off on the next um, leg of this planes, trains, and... Um, you know, death-defying um, odyssey um, to, to try and get to a more desirable country for them. So it's, it's, it's insane. So, so, um, so let's talk about Refugee Air, because you, you brought up this organization, I think, to me, right, who, who are, are trying to do something about that. This is a great, a great group, um, which are some former refugees who live in Sweden, actually from Iran. And they, they were as shocked as I mm. am about this ter terrible catch-22 that refugees are in. So they said, why don't we charter a plane, go down, vet the refugees, and, and make sure that they are refugees, you know, and that, that, that they will be granted asylum, or, you know, pretty close to it that they will be. And we'll just fly them over in a charter plane. And so they've already started. They said, we're going to do this before the first snowfalls in Sweden. I'm not sure they managed that yet, mm -hmm. but, they, but they definitely have started. And I didn't say that airlines have to pay a fine if they, if they let a refugee on, even though that person's a refugee, they have to pay a fine to the European Union if they take a refugee that's undocumented. Well, these guys don't have to pay a fine if they're in a charter plane. Mm -hmm. so, um, so hopefully this will get off the ground, so to speak, and, <laughs> and be a, a viable, it would, it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, and you had also brought up the Science for Refugees program. Do you want to just say a word this is, about this that? Is, uh, this is actually a program in the, in the European Union 
that the European Union has that will take uh, people who are scientists, who've been trained as scientists in their home country, and, um, and after, after they have already been granted refugee status, but actually to get them into the workforce as scientists. And so they have a whole process for this to happen, and so this is, Europe wants high, highly trained people, they need highly trained people, um, losing population like mad. Mm -hmm. Germany loses $200,000 people a year mm -hmm. um, from the workforce just, just because they're not having babies. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one touch point with Long Now that we have with this particular issue is, if uh, any of you have seen our talk by George Dyson, he talks about the amazing scientists, the incredible brains who came from Eastern Europe um, in the run-up to, to World War II who were f fleeing, who were refugees, and came to Princeton and, and for a small amount of money we were able to not only get the benefits of their great minds but save their lives uh, in, in a very real sense. And that's uh, an incredible brain trust that we've had. So clearly, clearly there are all kinds of people that are, that are caught up in this kind of forced migration. Um, so um, we should talk maybe a little bit more about the camps and, and life in the camps. I think you were saying that. Um, well, but let's actually, why don't we, um, let's, let's get some questions from, from the audience. So, right here in the, the corner of the bar. Um, what's the process Germany uses to take so many refugees, so many more refugees in other countries? And is that process something that could be adopted in other places? Great. And, and um, we'll actually use that microphone and pass around to people that are asking questions uh, for the next one. But uh, the, the question was, what is uh, Germany's process that, that allows them to take uh, a, a greater amount of refugees? What's, what's that? It's not a process. It's a decision on the, on the part of Angela Merkel, the chancellor, who said, we will, she first said, we will take 800,000 refugees this year. In 2015, it was raised to a million now. But every country has its own has its own, um, can, can make its own decisions. And so Germany has decided to do that, then tried to pressure other European countries to take their few thousand, and has caused a lot of dissension. And is, yes. is, there, is there a dialogue within the EU around, yes. around, around making that not as optional, but more Very uh, much compulsory? so. It's, uh, um, the EU has made it mandatory, but not in a good way because mm -hmm. they didn't have a consensus. They just took a majority vote and the most powerful, the biggest countries got together and said, if we get together, we can have a coalition and we can push this through so we can have a mandate for every state in the European Union to take refugees. And the East European countries did not want to do that at all. They, yeah. they said no and Slovakia said, we're only taking Christians, we're not taking mm. Muslims. And, and that's... Um, you know, and they went on and on in that way. And that's setting a really wonderful precedent, uh, Germany is. But I'll have you know, for the last 20 years, the United States has been the leader in refugee permanent refugee resettlement in the world. So much so that the US has resettled more refugees in our communities than the rest of the world combined. And that has been the case for the last 25, 30 years. The Sudanese, the Vietnamese, right here in San Francisco and Oakland, all over the United States, the US has led the charge and there was a time where the U.S., uh, in all our glory, um, were, were shaming other countries to do the same at the level that we were doing. And if there's one issue that, is, that gets bipartisan support, you were talking about the sanctity of refugees as, as 
It, it's refugee issues. Re Republicans and Democrats support refugee resettlement in ways that they will never support, knock on wood, uh, uh, services for migrants who are different than refugees. But I, I think it's worth saying that the United States has always been the leader in refugee resettlement, and other countries like Germany are following suit, finally. And if they're going to do quotas, you know, Australia's been great, UK, Canada, uh, New Zealand, Sweden, uh, <coughs> takes medical cases, but um, for the European Union to absorb the current wave, um, it's entirely possible. Not only, not only is it possible, they're neighbors, and it, it should be happening at much higher levels. So Angela Merkel, wherever you are, thank you. <laughs> and the Germans are so good at, you know, good at organizing these things. It's administratively not a problem. Mm. Uh, they're 350 <laughs> They're good at that. They're good at systems. They're, they're doing it systematically, and as only the Germans can do it. <laughs> Uh, and I think they it's like forms. They like their forms. Yeah, 350 million people in Europe and one million refugees. It's I'm, the, it, Europe needs these people. Mm. They need refugees. They need people to work. It's lo Europe's losing population. Yeah. No, I was just going to point out that the same year that they've been pointing out that Europe is losing population and that there's empty towns in Italy and Spain. It's the same year they're saying that they don't want all these refugees in, in the same countries, which is. Uh, very ironic. And, and, and I'll, uh, I guess I want to send out that, uh, I think I'm conflating two film pieces. There's another piece um, that shows an Italian crew, because there was a time when the Italians were particularly in charge of, um, of, of taking care of, of, of refugees. This is, I think, 2013, maybe 2013 when it was done. But uh, then it was handed over to an EU force who, was, who were much less sympathetic to getting folks to the other side, in, in short. Uh, it's, there's obviously some very differing cultural attitudes towards, um, towards, towards accepting people as they're, as they're coming through. Um, what other questions do we have? Um, let's show over here. Thank you. Um, I have two questions. The first one is, and let me preface this by saying I'm in favor of the free movement of people for whatever reason they want. And most of the Europeans I know um, are welcoming the, the, the refugees that are, that are coming there. The Europeans that I know that are not um, say that there's a direct relation with equality in that Northern Europe has, uh, has very low Gini coefficients and that, that by virtue of having people in those countries, it gives them a responsibility um, that the United States does not feel for its population. U.S. agriculture is dependent on, on undocumented workers um, in a way that, that that's not the, uh, the case in Europe and in um, other countries like um, Colombia with a lot of IDPs, with, with, uh, with Lebanon, the government does not in fact do very much for them. It doesn't feel that it has a responsibility or doesn't have the capacity to do that. So what is my answer to Europeans that, uh, that say that? Um, the second question I, I have is a general topic that I'm curious about that from the sort of long-term point of view is that right, um, right now the Kremlin um, is in a, has positioned itself in a very adversarial way with the West. Um, and uh, in, in my opinion, what, what the Kremlin is doing right now by the bombing campaign 
in, uh, in, in support of the government of, uh, of, of Syria is essentially creating a refugee tap that is, that is splitting Europe. And he sees that, in, as, and Putin sees that as in his interest. Um, do you see that as um, a, a, a future um, way, the, the creation of refugees um, as, a, as a, a, a tool of warfare in the way that cyber war or, or other forms of, uh, of, of insurgency may, uh, may be? Could that happen in other, other, other places? Thanks. Anyone? Uh, Two easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, Bev, you want to, oh yeah. Great. I can respond just very quickly to the last part of your last question, because it's the only part I remember. Um, no, I, I do remember the other parts. Scorched earth policy has been around for a long time, and, and politicians and, and dictators and leaders have used it very uh, purposefully to create geopolitical conflict to their benefit and to their gain. So the fact that this is happening, if, he, if, if, if Putin and uh, his, um, whatever you call them, are supporting the creation of more refugees, that's not a new uh, political tactic. It, it, it's like call your, call your bullshit, we know what you're doing. Uh, it's creating uh, div more divisiveness and so that's it's a really common, unfortunately a very common ta uh, tactic in civil war and in armed conflict. And who loses in most of that? It's the civilians, it's not the troops, it's, I mean they might, you know, I don't want to minimize that, but for the majority, it's the civilians that lose out in those um, underhanded tactics. So I'll take your first question. Um, I don't know if I have the right answer to your European friends, but I have possibly one answer. So um, in Jordan and Lebanon, where Palestinians have been um, a large portion of the population and have been long-term refugees now, 60 years plus, um, there, what you have is a kind of tiered labor market where Palestinians are allowed to do some jobs, but not all, and they're in a much more vulnerable legal position. So you have this kind of uh, structured or engineered inequality, right? So what that means is that for someone in, in Sweden or someone in, in, in a Scandinavian country with a, with a notion of citizenship that's organized around um, equality, right? And the state works very hard to redistribute resources among its populace. If it, if it accepts a refugee, which it's bound to do, and then denies that refugee full access to the privileges of being in that polity, you create an inequality that hurts everybody, right? And so the U.S. as well, I mean, you can, your European friends might say it's easier for the U.S. to absorb people. And, and by the way, I'm not sure that we absorb more people per capita, right? I think we're, we do okay. We've done not so great lately, and we have a great record on deportation. Deportation, we're outstanding. Um, <laughs> Right, but the fact that we don't provide the same services is because we tolerate a level of structural inequality in our country that is disturbing to most outside observers in Europe and to many, many of us in this country. So I think it's about the kind of society you want to live in. So, um, 
And let's, uh, Peter, if you're, I'm going to bring up somebody else with a name tag, if uh, are you, you ready to come? I, did, I started off thinking, well, we can only have three people on the stage, and I'm like, this is about refugees. Let's get crowded on our stage. So, Peter, you want to come up, uh, come up right here, grab the mic. And, and, and you've done work in, in Africa. Oh, no, no, come over here. Come over here. Here, I'll... Um, so, so we've been talking a lot about Europe, but I know you've worked in the field and uh, in various ways in Africa. So tell us, are, are, do these things tend to follow the same, or, or, or are there, there different dynamics we haven't talked about yet? Uh, I'm, and, learning, I'm learning a lot by listening tonight. Great. Uh, and, um, and for everyone, if you've got one of these handheld mics, make sure to hold it very close. You can't hold it too close. Um, and. Um, sorry, why don't you first introduce yourself and what you do today, what your, what your role is. Sure. So my name is Peter Transberg, and I work for an acronym. <laughs> I-N-E-E is the acronym. It stands for the Interagency Network for Education and Emergencies. Our whole focus is on providing education in crisis contexts. Um, so refugee situations are a piece of that. Um, internally displaced set, uh, settings are also a piece of that. Uh, how do you get kids back to school after a disaster? How do you provide safe passage and safe places for them to go during a conflict? Um, and so on and so forth. That's our whole mission, is to make sure that the right to education, which is standard for everyone, you hopefully all got to enjoy that right throughout your life, um, that that right is not diminished or neglected or ignored um, in any situation, especially in conflict situations or in, in crisis situations. So that's our focus. We partner with UNHCR, with UNICEF, the big UN agencies who do humanitarian work but also have a, an education component, and also the big NGOs, Save the Children and International Rescue Committee and, and Mercy Corps and others who also do humanitarian response but also some sort of education. So there are big partners. We have a couple hundred, a hundred partners that work within the network uh, we about 12,000 individual members who work around the world in a whole variety of contexts, every context you can imagine where crisis is happening and education is impacted. Um, and that could be, yeah, in, in Latin America where gang violence is a problem, it can be in, in sub-Saharan Africa where militias are preventing children from getting to school or where a cyclone has hit. And certainly it has to do with, with refugee situations and Syria being the big situation for the last few years um, that our partners have focused on. Um, my personal experience has largely been in Africa and mainly with internally displaced people, not so much with refugees. Um, I've never worked in a camp, um, have only visited, um, and have mainly worked with internally displaced uh, IDPs. Mm -hmm. um, the problems are similar, and I, I don't want to re repeat uh, what they're saying here, and I, like I said, I'm learning a lot about the situation, even though this is certainly on our radar, a lot on our radar. Um, but the fact is there are somewhere just under three million Syrian children who are out of school, Ch children and youth. Um, 2.8 is the sort of best estimate of, of, of children and youth who are out of school. They're not in school. They're not actively engaged or enrolled in school right now. And, and that's hugely worrying. Um, some of them, that's been a few months. Some of them, that's been four, almost five years now. And that has an impact on them right now, especially because they're not in school, they're not necessarily in a safe place, they're looking for things to do, their, their parents are sending them to go do certain things, um, in many cases. Um, and it's gonna have an impact next year, and in five years, and in 25 years. Um, that gap 
uh, of, of so many children not being, not pursuing an education right now will have ripple effects for. It's another lost generation long, kind yes. of scenario. Absolutely. Yeah. So the focus that we try to put on it is that there's action that needs to be taken now, immediately. In the case of any kind of crisis, we're always there with the, with the food, the water, the shelter. We're always saying, okay, you guys do your thing on the first three days. Fourth day, we're coming in. Education needs to be part of this emergency response from the beginning. Not the fourth week, not the fourth month, not next year. It needs to happen starting now, this, the first week of a response, once people have food, water, and shelter. Um, but that education provides uh, a normalcy to children and youth that is hugely impactful on them and on their entire families, allows parents to get back rebuilding their lives, whatever that might be. It ensures that they have some safe place to go. It's, however, not easy. It's not as easy as saying, okay, send your kid to the school because uh, it's a safe place and we know, that we know where that is and, and every, everything's going to be just fine. In a case like a refugee situation in Syria, where children are in Turkey, where they don't speak the language, or they're in, in Jordan, or in Lebanon, or all the way in Europe, it's not easy to just take them into your classroom, which might already be overfull. Uh, teachers don't know how to deal with them, they don't know how to cope with them. So a lot of what we're doing is working with ministries of edu education, and with the organizations who are providing education programming, to learn how to do that. For your specific context, what do you need? Do you, do you need more training for the teachers? Do you need more space? Do you need to build new classrooms? Do you need to do double shifts? What are the, what are the strategies that need, you need to put in place in your community? And as you can imagine, it's a, it's, it's, it's a big job um, and varies depending on the context, depending on the country. Um, so so um, we're getting a, a little bit close on our time. I want to ask, is there anyone out there who's got a question that you haven't heard addressed at all? Is there, there's a topic we haven't even touched on because there's so much, um, there, there's so much to cover here. Did you, you have something What's um, Here you go. Spring up close. Go ahead and stand up then. Yes, yeah. um, maybe it's not entirely a question as much of a comment, but I'm hearing a lot of different problems. I'm hearing things about them being connected and I'm wondering if someone's done a sort of systematic typology of all challenges that affect refugee and migration <coughs> Uh, worked according to domain, scale, and time, so that somebody can reason through, and you know, people who want to, one, contribute and help, uh, can figure out where to position themselves. But secondly, also, to understand what are all of the missed opportunities we have for changing the foundational conditions under which these problems are solved. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'll tag on to that. Is there best practices sharing? Is there, I mean, UNHCR is touching a lot of these things, but is, it, are, 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 are there, is there a way for learnings to bubble up and, and be shared in different scenarios? Does anyone have, um, have, have an answer to that or the best answer to that? <coughs> Nobody has. <coughs> oh, you've got a mic. Oh, no, is that you? Okay. No. Well, I can say a, a couple things on that. All right. No, no one has the full mapping yet anyway. I think it's such, it's such a fluid situation that it's really, it is difficult to map uh, a migrant population and what are all their needs and uh, people are moving, they're on the, uh, they're on the move. Um, Hugh mentioned earlier that, that some organizations have, and, and UNHCR of course because their refugee agency is leading on a lot of this, um, but some organizations have, have, have tried innovative approaches. We do know that Syrian refugees generally, about 80% have smartphones. Um, so we know that, that people have done some, some mapping of that so we understand that they have at least a smartphone. Um, they may not have backups for it or a computer at home or anything else, but they have a smartphone and so they have access to apps. 
And so there has been a lot of uh, efforts to create interesting, especially on the education side, interesting and useful and good learning apps for children who are on the move. Um, the Norwegians have been behind that, putting some funding into that with USAID and others to try and develop actual, ba the basic things like literacy apps for children who are just out of school. Um, so there's some efforts, it's, it's a little piecemeal, um, focused on a per particular segment of, of a population in a particular area, in a particular language. Um, but there are some efforts like that. Um, yeah, uh, maybe I'll leave it at that. Each, each country has its sort of own response, regional response. Like in the case of Jordan, they get everybody together, the ministers of you know, all the sort of the different agencies. They bring in UNHCR, they bring in UNICEF, UNDP, everybody. And, and at some point, they are actually sitting in one room trying to map out a sort of long-term response. And they're, they're famous for generating very, very thick documents on, on the solution. Um, but unfortunately, that's, that doesn't really go beyond the borders because the, the issues are so border-driven. Um, uh, Lebanon has its own sort of issues that, that are different than Jordan. And, uh, and Kenya might have its own sort of issues that are different than Somalia. So um, it's, it's largely sort of localized. But there is, there is, at some point, a discussion where everybody's in the room. <clears throat> May I? Oh, you haven't gone. You want to introduce yourself and, yeah. say, and answer, respond to the question? Please. Hi. Uh, so my name is Sara. I'm from Italy. So I would like to actually bring in a more personal perspective to all of this because yeah. it's great to think about the foundation and the, the bigger problem. But in the end of the day, it's a lot of politics. So it's really escape our, our, our action. But I want to bring the perspective as a friend. I lived in Syria in 2009 and... Uh, Many of my friends also expatriate living in Syria. Now have friends Syrian that became refugees. So what I did is I followed the refugees from Greece to Germany in October. I followed a family with four children. And uh, it was really a very meaningful experience because it's like a friend going with friends if someone like, I mean, during the Second World War, there were many people helping the Jewish people, the Jewish fleeing and you know. So I think many of us in Europe, as volunteers, it's very important these, these individual actions where governments and states are failing, so we are trying to bridge the gap. It's either walking with them or like doing anything to... And so, for just to be very sure, what I understood through going through a trip from Greece to Germany by foot, just imagine you are very hungry, you're very tired, you're very cold and there is no solution. Like, until you get to Germany, you don't know what's gonna happen with you because the police might, might take you and, okay, so now I'm Italian, so at any point I can show my passport and say I'm Italian, so please let me go, especially in Serbia and Croatia, it was very difficult. But for refugees, they, you know, it's a question of luck. So that's the first thing I want to, to say. So I think really connecting on this individual level, it would be very important because we are here talking but when you actually go there and just walk with them, because with an American passport, you can do it. Nothing's gonna happen to you. You can actually help them. You can speak to them and understand who they are and where they're from. So if anyone wants to take that trip, I can give you some names and let me know. And the other thing is in Italian, it is true that it's difficult for us to accept refugees, mostly because we are not an immigration country. Like We immigrated to the US mostly, but we never had refugees before, so it's a new thing. But it's not because 
we are particularly racist, it's more out of ignorance that you don't really know who they are. So I think uh, hopefully it's going to change in the future and I hope Europe will open up. But there are very many right-wing governments right now, so it's a big challenge. But I agree with all of, of you that we can take them and uh, the young people, we are very open-minded and we will try to, yes. So, uh, and, and, and in Sergio, did you? Um, yeah, I had one uh, really quick response Please. to the gentleman who asked that question, and I wanted to say, what, what's your name? Thank you for asking that question, because that's the type of question that needs to be asked. It's an ambitious question. He's blushing now. He's, he's smiling. <laughs> but I, I think he, what you said is exactly right. That it is very country specific. And I, like Peter, have a lot of experience in East Africa. But there are some overarching dynamics going on. One is human rights right to emergency aid, right to education, right to food, right to water, right to protection, legal protection. And I can tell you right now, guess where the innovate, there are two uh, innovation centers. One is UNHCR Innovation Center, who you mentioned earlier. And there's a UNICEF Innovation Center. But guess where the, 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 the hubs of technological innovation for the UN are based in, in the world now? She said San Francisco, answers now. <laughs> guess where they're based? Geneva and the Netherlands. Are you guys gonna stand for that? So the fact that you asked that question <laughs> says we need to create a little cell, sleeper cell, no, not sleeper cell. Take, Maybe we don't that. wanna call it that. No, 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 no. I don't, no, no, no. I don't think that's not An gonna innovation help. cell here, because there are people who have worked all over the world who are here, and what do we have? We have Silicon Valley, we have some really bright-minded, bright wonderful people. So uh, my organization, just do a little plug, we're trying to do that mapping globally, and we're trying to come up with solutions, but we're a little bitty fish in a very big pond, and we need partners like UN, UNHCR, IRC, Save the Children, NYU, UC Berkeley, Stanford, you name it, and your organization as well, <laughs> to support. So there are, you know, maybe this will be the, the start of a like, next meetup, um, to think about those really big questions and how we solve them, because we got the brain power. Look at you guys, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for showing up. Like I said, please don't go away. Please uh, keep this conversation going. Ask the question you didn't get a chance to, to ask here. I think we've just stirred up uh, a, a bunch of thoughts. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting your name. I'm <laughs> meeting everybody on the fly. Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, my name is Rahman. Rahman Osman. Stand up, stand up. Um, yeah, tell us, tell us what your thoughts are, and then tell us uh, what you're going to, to, to play for us. Okay. First of all, uh, my name is Rahman Osman. I'm, sorry. I'm Kurdish from Syria. I've been here in the U.S. for three, uh, three years and a half. Uh, I applied for asylum in the U.S. and still waiting for the decision. But I, uh, I could have the opportunity to, to work here and I have uh, my life. So I think uh, comparing to my people, all over the world, I am, I am very lucky. So because I know uh, many of my friends, even my family, they scattered all over the world and they are suffering a lot. Uh, even in the neighboring countries. Uh, so some uh, maybe may think that maybe they will be more comfortable in the neighboring country because they, they know this, the language or uh, from very close cultural aspects, but no at all. Even uh, uh, a few members of my family, they live in, uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan now because I'm Kurdish. 
But at the same time, even though the uh, uh, even Iraqi Kurdistan, they have a lot of problems there right now. Uh, so uh, we used to have a lot of refugees in Syria. Uh, me myself, I was training English back home in uh, in Damascus uh, for Iraqi refugees and some uh, Palestinian refugees. I worked with the European Institute uh, there um, called IECD. And uh, we had Palestinian, uh, Iraqi, Somalian, but I never thought that we, Syria, will be refugees in other countries. So I know it's very hard because I, would, I could have the contact or like a relationship with other refugees from the Iraqi, uh, Iraqi people and the Palestinian. So I, I know the hardship of the being refugee in another country, uh, but I know, uh, because I have now uh, contact with my friends all over the world, uh, Syrian, uh, they, they have uh, a lot of difficulties, more than the Palestinian and Iraqi had in, in Syria itself. Uh, so uh, I would thank everybody who's coming here uh, talk about refugees, especially in the Syrian refugees, and thank you for inviting me here. I know he's doing a great job uh, there in Jordan with his friends. Um, since I've been in, in the United States, uh, I uh, participated in many events, uh, like um, fundraising concerts for Syrians, uh, Kurds, even Palestinians. Uh, by the way, I have BA in translation from Damascus University, and I used to teach English back home. But since I got here, uh, I never thought that I would teach English in America because, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I work in garage doors right now. I learned how to uh, fix garage doors here. And sometimes I think I will uh, work in translation. But my passion is music. I've been playing uh, uh, this instrument called Saz, which is a Kurdish uh, instrument. Uh, we call it tambour or Saz. It's developed from uh, the original tambour, which is 5,000 years old. So I've been playing this instrument for 30 years now. Uh, I never studied music and never studied this instrument. I just started playing it at home uh, when I was like 10 years old. And I think I'm professionally playing it. <laughs> so I started composing uh, since I was 15 years old. And I played in many venues in Damascus and even here, uh, or in Syria and in the United States. Uh, I hope like someday, I will just do music, nothing else. Uh, you know it's very hard to make living from music here, and I think everywhere in the world, uh, except if you are like a big celebrity. So uh, I will participate here now with uh, some music maybe, which is the language of the world, it's a universal language, and something of my composition. Uh, and I hope you will enjoy it.
Thank you. The next one is gonna be my composition. It ju I just composed it. Uh, it's uh, reflecting my feeling about the whole thing that's going uh, in my uh, home with all these refugees. And uh, I hope you will enjoy it.
Thanks for listening to The Conversations at the Interval. To find out more about our series and Long Now, go to theinterval.org or longnow.org. Thanks again.